Hi folks. I'm going to do uh, a little bit of a, a, a new read aloud. I finished feed last night, so if you've been following along with the feed reading, um, uh, that we just finished that uh, last night, and I'm going to be starting a new project, and I think it's going to be we, Yevgeny Zamyatin's we, uh, that's going to come up next. But uh, in the meantime, I've been ordering a lot of new books. A lot of uh, books have been coming in and you know if the day comes that I don't have any other opportunities than to sit at home and read books and think, I'll have a lot of uh, material to work through. And um, But before I started We, which I will say, it's, I think it's really important. This is, uh, let's see, Yevgeny Zamyatin, 1921. It was written, so it really predates 1984 and A Brave New World and all the ones that more people are familiar with. And it's really based in mathematics. And as they spend more time understanding sort of the deontic logic uh, of the smart contract layer, I think this is going to be really, really important. Um, but before I dive into this, I ordered this lovely little book called The, um, the Garden of Forking Paths. And it has a few short essays from uh, uh, Jorge Luis Borges, Borges. Um, and I wanted to read this. And part of the reason, let me go over and change up my uh, the little camera here. Uh, and I'll pull this, pull this over so you can see. I want to zoom in a little bit and tell you why, how I ended up ordering this book, because this is way up in the corner here. Um, and some of the stuff I want to talk through with Cliff, and I think we're going to do that tomorrow and then post it later in the week, is this idea of sort of different cosmologies with humans being the sole caretaker of, caretakers of evolution, the evolutionary process, and how that differs from indigenous cosmologies. And uh, in, in doing that, I, I was looking through this section. I was adding out this, this bit of the map with the world sensorium. Let me zoom in a little bit more. So you guys can see that more closely. Um, so the, the World Sensorium uh, area and sort of linking that to this idea that the future global superorganism is going to be made up of structured data um, and structured information. And so in many ways, the internet, as far as connecting us, is also allowing us to connect information, including these crazy maps that I'm making. And um, as we create the information, we're also feeding it into the global brain. Um, so we're actually sort of building out this super organism as we leave these stigmergic thought trails. And let me see, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I might just move to this other option so we can see it a little bit more closely. So yeah, so these stigmergic thought trails were actually part of something Vannevar Bush, who uh, was a leader in um, the radar lab, the rad lab at MIT, and then afterwards developed the National Science Foundation. Uh, in the Atlantic Magazine, uh, back in the day, let me see when exactly this publication was. Uh, As We May Think, it's a very important essay, and July of 1945. Uh, and essentially he was postulating this future of uh, exterior brains. <laughs> and he actually developed this idea of a, a memex, 
which was a, a, a much larger than your iPhone, but essentially a desk that had these mimeographs and um, keypads for entering codes and all of this information could be encoded with key, keywords and cross-referencing and that you could use this as your external mind and it could be sort of shareable. And so this was very early uh, understandings of how um, the ARPANET, you know, later the, the internet, the World Wide Web would work and now Web3. It, it, many people were influenced profoundly by this idea of the memex and um, including this one gentleman uh, whose name was Ted Nelson. And Ted Nelson had this early idea that predated the World Wide Web um, of having, this, he was developing something called Project Xanadu. And, uh, you know, he's, I don't know if he's still alive. He was in his uh, mid to later 80s in recent years and still working with uh, archive.org on this idea that he had of interconnected documents, digital material that it would not only be initially he was thinking like word processing, right, text, but you know, as we imagine things moving in these new phases, it would be, um, you know, possibly digital memories, right? Um, video material, audio material, uh, imagery, gaming, animation, um, all sorts of information that was presented, not unlike these maps, right? Um, in an organized fashion. And, and he actually, back in the 1960s, which is when he was um, initially conceptualizing this, um, including automated royalties and payments um, tied to accessing all of these informations, which is, is very much linked in my mind to where we're going with Web3 now. Um, and what he was talking about was this idea of stigmergy. Uh, this is an inter a long form interview that he had um, with people at archive.org. And uh, I'll just read it out loud, this, this quote section. Uh, the interviewer says, so earlier you talked about how Vannevar Bush's piece inspired you about connections between writing. Can you explain, expand on that a bit and describe how it influenced your later work? And then Ted says, no idea. All I know is that there was this article about how researchers of the future, now this came in in 1945 when I was eight years old, about how researchers of the future could make connections between pieces of writing, like frames of microfilm. And Bush talked about trails. In a trail, he never defined it, but was a series of connected pieces. And he also talked about side trails. And again, we can only speculate as to what he meant. And, and for me, when I, I imagine this idea of trails of interconnected thinking and thought trails, that feels to me very much like stigmergy, right? Like the ants that, you know, all the way down here in this other part of the map, let me see, keep going down, down, down. This idea of um, pheromones and leaving trails and, you know, the way in which even these maps that I'm making are sort of like artificial pheromone systems um, that are trails that hopefully others could maybe use to go back and think about how I thought about things and reflect in their own thinking and evolve their thinking based on um, ideas that might be embedded in these maps that trigger um, memories or ideas or connections that I haven't made and to build on that and that that would be this sort of organic optim you know process and you know it's, it's weird because on the one hand I guess in doing this we are building the global superorganism um, so I don't know how that all goes at this point like this is a way that I think through it and I think it has this long legacy again back to 1945 with um, uh, 
Vannevar Bush, and and again, that is um, you know Vannevar Bush with the NSF with the Manhattan Project, very much about uh, biophysics, right, and econophysics and uh, psychometrics and waveforms, all of those things. Let me see if, if Bush is in here. Yeah, Vannevar Bush. Oh no, we're going back up. Let me see if he's in here. Yeah, I have him all over the in this part of the web. You know, we have him. Uh, linked to uh, the National Defense Research Committee, which was doing the early work uh, before we, the United States had officially entered World War II. And this was being conducted through uh, the, the Alfred Loomis, uh, Loomis Labs in Tuxedo Park, this early phase of the, the RAD Lab or uh, the Radar Lab uh, that was happening in conjunction with MIT. And so, um, so, so we've got this labyrinth, right? We have a, a labyrinth of ideas. We have these stigmergic webs of thought trails. Um, the other guy that's really interesting to me, his name is Eugene Garfield. And I, I talked about him a little bit with Jason and Lynn when we were doing the, the deconstructing Biden talk because Eugene Garfield, um, so it's interesting, uh, the, the uh, Ted Nelson, uh, who developed this idea of these interconnected thought trails uh, with micropayments in the 1960s, he actually was a Penn graduate and he was a student of Noam Chomsky. And so he was working on computational linguistics and many of these people are working in the linguistic space. In fact, I just found a new paper today about yeah, a language for intelligent machines by K. Eric Drexler who's, this is a recent paper, and Drexler, I mean, he, he's early in the nanotech space, and he must have been around for a while, but he's still developing uh, for Oxford and the Future of Humanity Institute this idea of a language for intelligent machines that we could interface with um, machines and people in direct ways. And, you know, I was looking at, at Sebs's talk about uh, the DAGs or the decentralized acyclic graphs and this structured information that sort of is open-ended. And to me, maybe it feels like the, the bibliography, the interconnected information through decentralized ledger technology in combination with intelligent machine language and cloud minds where people participate in, in digital spaces with machines and sharing some common language might be represented in one of these DAG graphs. And then maybe, maybe that is what the global superorganism becomes, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say uh, for, for people who aren't, you know, familiar with Reiser's work. Uh, he was working at the same time as Julian Huxley in that UNESCO document. And, you know, he's talking about, this is in the World Sensorium uh, paper that he wrote, I think in 1946. So right around the same time, within a year of Huxley's UNESCO uh, sort of charter. He says that he's hoping that someone with creative vision could come along and dissolve old habits of thought and free men from their solidified mental patterns and emancipate the world from financial and political prisons of our enslaved society. A great visual drama, a play on an immense scale might lift us up, cast a prophetic spell over us, and we would then feel ourselves as actors on a stage as big as the world itself. As a provisional sketch of possibilities, we propose an impressive coronation ceremony for planetary democracy. And, you know, I feel like that's, that's one of these things that's coming. But they're, they're going to try to sort of organize this um, through organized information. And th these are these sort of bibliographies. Um, Eugene Garfield was also connected with Penn. Uh, he 
develop sort of these early this early stage of uh, machine generated indexing and that's something that Leo has been looking into because among the early indexing projects that happened was um, indexing of declassified information related to the Manhattan Project and there's quite an emphasis on the uh, organization of scientific research both it was within the backdrop of the Cold War that, that there was this arms race with Russia and that we needed to find ways of organizing information in a country that was built on sort of private capital and research interests as opposed to open collective uh, um, research that there was these two different models and they were looking at ways of indexing the uh, technological developments and then making them applicable. But Eugene Garfield was really at the edge, the, the, the bleeding edge of coming up with a way of automating indexing with computational systems and then building that up. So I think that that's really important moving forward is understanding how organized information uh, builds on this. And some of the early indexing projects that he was involved with was the Welch Medical Library, uh, which was uh, the the at Johns Hopkins, actually, so this early biophysics, and it was funded by the, the Army Medical Library. So this, this early organization of information as, you know, as an incipient presence in the world, uh, as, as a being that might evolve and manifest was something that Garfield was very interested in. And he, he was part of one of the early urban science and technology districts, which is uh, just north of the University of Pennsylvania campus, which is an urban campus, so it just sort of all bleeds together. But the University Science uh, and Technology Center, his indexing company was in there, and then at one point he actually uh, commissioned a project of a hologram, a holographic representation of a world brain. And for people listening, it's, it's quite messy, but it, it almost looks like there's a figure standing with their arms up like a magician or something. And then, then an orb that is moving with sort of a brain inside of it and all of these different um, platonic solids and rays and things that are around it. And, and this still exists. I think it's been moved to, um, it used to be the Chemical Heritage Society, but it's been remade as some other nonprofit name or related to the sciences. But it's, it now occupies a space that's not far from Independence Mall and the American Philosophical Society. So, um, yeah, so this is what I've sort of been working through today is this idea of indexed information, playing with information, um, sort of sense making, right? Like sense making out of, out of all of this data. And, um, but before I get started, I because I do want to talk a little bit about playfulness before. Oh, so I guess what I wanted to say is when I was doing all of this work, I was looking at actually early uh, hypertext and uh, that these thought chains from Vannevar Bush, uh, that those were sort of the, the precedents for the idea of hypertext, of interlinked thoughts and connections. And... Um, so in, in, in looking at the hypertext, the history, they, they actually brought up this uh, book called The Garden of Forking Paths, which was this story that I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read um, here. And that it was, uh, it was, let's see, in a 1941 short story by the writer and poet um, Jorge Luis Borges. And it is uh, part of this, uh, uh, actually, it's a labyrinth book. Because I actually, I ordered the little book and then I actually have the whole book about labyrinths. And so we've been talking so much about the labyrinths and I'm going to make my way through the bigger book too. Um, but it, it, in here, it's talking about 
um, that their, their vision has been cited as an inspiration by many scholars in, in the field of hypertext fiction and, and the paths that fork off in the idea of um, sort of infinity and multiverses. And so I think that's, that's, that's why I wanted to read this today before we get into we, is, is to sort of touch back on the labyrinth and playing around in the labyrinth and, and what, what that all means. And, and then I also wanted to talk a little bit about, read a, a little section from this playbook too, um, the Kars playbook to get started. Um, because I've been sort of talking with my friend Cliff about um, like life, this game of life, the idea of finite games centered on winning, the, the alternate paradigm of an infinite game which is based on that every move that you make is based on continuing play um, and, and the idea that we, we move into play and that it's, it's a, you can have finite games within the infinite game, but if we can find a playful way to approach our circumstances, then it opens up a lot more creative opportunity. And, um, and you know, I feel like once we put in the smart contract layer, and I know it's, it's a little bit before five here, Eastern Standard Time, I just want to remind everybody that at eight o'clock, we're going to do another stream. It won't be live, but Leo and Jason and I pre-recorded it about Web3, another introduction to Web3. And um, so please, you know, come back for that or watch it later because that's actually really important. But that if we, once we install this layer of logic onto the world, the playfulness is going to be really constrained, I think. Um, not that it can lock out play, play and, and lock us all into finite games, but it, it's going to require a much um, more focused intentionality to um, stay to not become entangled in the Web3 contracting mechanisms and to, to make our own way and to sort of navigate between the giant jacks on the beach and to find that space. Um, and so we probably should start to refine our playfulness now. And, you know, I'll say my, for myself, I'm actually much more of a materialist. I'm working more on the abstract because I have to, but I, I, I was trained in cultural landscape and and analyzing paintings and analyzing, you know, architectural buildings. And I like the material world. I like all of those things. And it's hard for me to stretch into the abstraction, into the space of philosophy or even computing or coding or all of that. It's, it's not my natural habitat in any way. And I'm actually like, I wish I had a more sen of a sense of humor <laughs> that like my toolkit is sort of equipped with a lot of like intensity and focus and detail orientedness and sort of stubbornness. And the playful part of me is not the biggest part. And so that's one of the things that I have to work on because um, in these worlds of these sugar scape artificial societies that are really built around um, stigmergy and teaming and defensiveness and winning and wrong making and um, it's it's it, it's very easy to be drawn into that and and you need a lot of creativity to step outside and I often am not successful in that and then I have to revisit again like how how do we be playful in the face of something that seems so overwhelming um, and so in, in this space, I keep going back to this from Bitcoin to Burning Man book um, that 
was involved in many of the people who are connected with the Descent Project and this Open Mustard Seed Digital Identity Project at MIT Media Lab. Um, and one of them is Jeremy Pitt. And I've, I've talked a bit about Jeremy Pitt in the past. He's a, a, his background is in, um, he's at the Imperial College London, and he works in cyber-physical systems, uh, intelligent systems, and human network interconnections and agents. And so one of the talks that I had uh, sort of excerpted before was with a woman um, at Arizona State University, and they were talking about like a future where we all live in small villages with Linux servers in our basements and smart meters, and we do things collectively in the smart contract layer, but somehow it's supposed to be, um, you know, um, uh, wonderful like a gift economy, only it really sounds like the utmost totalitarian technocracy. I mean, it sounds like what we're going to see in the WeBook coming up. And um, so he actually collaborates with this guy at Stanford. And, you know, Stanford is a center for the impact finance space uh, named Josiah Ober. And uh, so I was able to get a copy of this paper uh, and it's, it's uploaded to the blog. So if you go through the map and you want to check it out for yourself, I encourage you to do that. It's called Knowledge Management. For the democratic for democratic governance of socio-technical systems, and again, my plug for the day: we should be spending half of our intellectual free time understanding Web three, and one of those key elements in Web three is the cyber-physical systems. Okay, and and it's going to remake democracy, and this is the thing I keep emphasizing from people, no matter where you identify on the political spectrum or off the political spectrum is that the idea of democracy is changing and it's changing towards token exchanges, uh, often uh, where AI is a proxy for our vote and embedding our values in those tokens, um, which aren't just going to be crypto tokens, they're going to be these governance tokens. And that's something that Again, you know, Jason and Leo can speak to because they're much more aware of how the tokenomics works in terms of organizing these open source, you know, Ethereum based different kinds of crypto spaces. But there's tokens that have these values and then there's also there are different kinds of tokens and a lot of them are governance related tokens. And so that's going to be the norm for everything moving forward if we don't question it is in this digital transformation that they're talking about is that and, and it's quite fascinating because in this paper. Their real focus is, you know, how do we do this self-organizing bottom-up system? And increasingly, you know, what I've been spending time on the past couple months is this idea of complex adaptive systems and looking at the Santa Fe Institute. So um, I just got this book in the mail uh, day before yesterday. It's called Signals and Boundaries by John H. Holland, and he was the pioneer of genetic algorithms. And he helped develop um, sort of this high-level computational systems at the Santa Fe Institute um, early on. So he's really important. I'm not sure that he's still alive. He was in his 80s when he wrote this book in 2014. Um, but this idea of emergence at the boundary of order and chaos, that chaotic age, is really super important. And I also have another book. This is a memoir, a very readable memoir, by um, George Cowan, who helped found uh, the Santa Fe Institute. And you know, it talks a lot about the interconnections with Los Alamos. And, and again, how I'm, I keep sort of saying that there's going to be this shift from, uh, you know, th the Manhattan Project never ended. It just segued into the Human Genome Project. And with that, biophysics and econophysics and social physics and psychometrics, all of these waveforms are starting to merge together. Um, so 
yeah, so signals and boundaries are something that I've been working on a lot lately. Um, but they want to, with Ober, working on this bottom-up thing to create this emergence. Um, but they want to frame it because it's all, they, to get us to walk into their game and to live in their finite game within the infinite game, they need to tell us a story that resonates. And so the story that they're telling is, you know, Stanford, Josiah Ober from the elite schools, right? They're saying that this is actually going to be like Athenian democracy and that we're just going to have a computational version of, of that. Um, and and it, it goes on to say, you know, we're, we're going to come up with automated uh, uh, socio-technical systems to manage a common resource, the commons, um, peer production, the sharing economy, our workplaces, our living spaces, our uh, health, all of those. And I would say, you know, Jason just messaged me yesterday about Andreessen Horowitz putting a bunch of money into, I think, Adam Neumann, Newman's new flow. He was the one who set up all of the we work. We work, we live, we learn. Um, those co-working stigmergic spaces were the early, you know, everyone's like, we don't know what that was about. Well, it was about this, guys. Like, it was about, you know, um, what is that movie, Sorry to Bother You, <laughs> that was out there, you know, like this near future of like, end game, um, you know, hive mind cubicle work, only you're not even going to a cubicle anymore. You're just like put tuning into your brainwave headband. And then we're, we're managing all of these assets in common, but not as a socialist or communist paradigm. But I keep saying to my friends, like wading into the polarization of the political ideology um, is serving this machine. What we have to understand that is that the, the collective is the ant computer. The collective is the, the hive, is the ant, is the wasp nest, is the school of fish, is the flocking birds. Like it is a computational system that that is where we're going. And if we can understand it as that and understand that all of the people kind of have their hand, whether they understand it or not, in, de in developing these emergent systems, then we can be more mindful about it. Um, so again, they're looking to automate all of these rule-based systems uh, that that organize for the quote unquote common good, and you know I was just realizing the other day that uh, the folks behind the health passporting system they actually it's called the Commons Project, and when I first ran into that I just didn't fully appreciate what that meant the commoning. But you know I have this whole other talk that's about the tokenized Commons. So that word um, and Eleanor Ostrom who de developed the idea of commons-based economics is really, really central to this idea of tokenization. They want to sell it to us as not financialization, as something else, as radical democracy, but I think we need to be really clear about what these tokens are about. So in this, this paper, Ober goes in, like this is his section on classical Athens, and is saying that Athens um, excelled because they organized useful knowledge, and they did that um, through cooperation. And they had collective decision-making, collective coordination, and collective memory. And, um, and that, through uh, effective and transparent and interdependent systems, allowed them to sort of win out over the other city-states. And that they would aggregate knowledge, uh, align the knowledge, and codify it. And that is all going to be happening in the Web3 smart contract layer. And it's all going to be um, humans, but humans feeding their value system into the machine, into the structure of the machine. Um, and then it says, you know, how do we get the right answer? Well, um, first we incentivize them. So that's all of these tokenomics, the token incentives. Um, we uh, 
we we try to get the right answer by by encouraging knowledgeable people to share their knowledge with the group. Now this is a lot of this is going to be open source for public goods finance. They're they're rolling out this new model of VC funding, uh, retroactive funding tied to impact, and that's something that's going to be coming up in the next talk. Um, and then they ensure that the communication is has an ease of communication that it's less costly and where the information gets where it needs to be. And again, that's the sort of the physics, the social physics of uh, this sort of hypertext layer. Um, and that, that, uh, that false information would be removed from true information and relevant information would be sorted from the irrelevant information. So I think we can see how all of the, the narrative around fake news and everything that that was sort of part of all of that. And then through those systems, that's how they achieved their coordination. Um, and, and then in these systems of voting and decision making, um, there were different models and some were, there were models of uh, one agent acts and the other follows in alignment uh, as a cascade. And that is part of swarm robotics engineering, um, the, 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 the leader model. You can program these swarm robotics, whether they're drones or these little rolly ones on the floors, to follow the leader. You have the choice leader, the one who's appointed, and then they move into the space. Um, the other model is that you follow all the rules that every agent, which is every voter or proxy, um, believes that there is a rule and everyone will respect the rules and so they always follow the rules. And then there's a, a third model, which is commitment following, where you, you are required to commit to ensure that we will act in unison. And I'm, I'm thinking that this has somewhat to do with like the staking of tokens, that that is a commitment in the staking of tokens in particular spaces. Um, and, and then once all the decisions are made, it is codified, it becomes an institutional memory uh, with, with some ability to uh, adapt it over time, uh, based on new information and new analysis, but that that everyone understands what the memory is and remembers that for the next time. And again, that's part of the ledger system. And so, um, you know, this collective decision-making, coordination, memory, having this all automated, you know, and I wanna talk about this a little bit just from a personal standpoint, because, you know, I'm, you know, you guys could probably see there's not a whole lot of people here watching these these lives. You know, my, my count numbers are down and, um, you know, and it's because I'm not really pandering, <laughs> no offense, but to try to like get clicks and likes and to be sensational. I'm doing this in a very straightforward way and evolving my thinking as I get new material and I'm able to communicate it outwards to other people. And again, the, the complex adaptive systems and the swarm intelligence are really central to me over the past quarter of this. Um, but for the most part, these aren't stories that people are occupying people's minds. They're chasing whatever is the next piece of the next news cycle. Now, I mean, you might debate whether the stuff that I'm talking about is particularly timely and relevant and that maybe it's more important to be chasing the news cycle um, and, and following whatever is trending on social media and um, maybe, you know, leave it up to me to, <laughs> to, to, to do some of this investigation and then eventually, like, when you get around to it, you come back and, um, uh, you know, catch up. And, and you can because, you know, I make the, all of this, I put all of this out there freely. Um, but 
a lot of what's happening out there, I think, in the resistance spaces right now is a lot of blame making and a lot of hammer throwing and a lot of war making. Like when the Athenians say, like, show up for battle with your weapons and your swords and everything, like that's a lot of what occupies people's time these days. And I would say that whole system of showing up in that way isn't going to get us towards playfulness at all. It's going to retrench us in the battle in opposition, and it's going to keep us where they want us, where we can be managed. And they can say, okay, this is how we're making the decisions now, right? This is how things are going to go. Um, and so I just, I want to read this bit out of the play and see, um, uh, see what you think, because, um, yeah, I'm just, I've, I feel like I've either, what I've been hoping is that over time, other people will find this sufficiently interesting to find their own way into the labyrinth near where I'm at, and we can sort of surface material together and interact. And what I found, like I used to sort of say like, oh, you know, I have like 12 or 15 people I'm pretty close to. and and that doesn't seem like a lot, but I count that a good day. You know, like, I guess that's not so bad. And at this point, I think I'm more like around maybe four or five. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think it's possible that some people might say that I'm too rigid or I'm, I'm I, you know, I, I'm not playful enough or I don't bend in certain ways. And, and that might be true. Although like I'm open to having conversations and I think increasingly in this world, um, you know, maybe this is my payback in terms of like trying to manage my energy and focus and using blocking or whatever but we're we're definitely working on systems where in in the complex adaptive system landscape um, there's something called the theory of the adjacent possible and this idea of the adjacent possible is like within um these holons within these circular spaces of groups. And they, again, they use the social physics to get everyone in their groups and then to pit those groups against the other groups. Like the Athenian, this city state against that city state and everybody got their hammers and their swords and right, right. Um, but actually the adjacent possible means like at the perimeter of the circle, there are interesting opportunities that wouldn't um, be available unless you actually had an organized circle, circular hole. That's part of the cybernetics. And some permeability around that boundary layer. But this adjacent possible idea is out there. And um, if you think about it, the adjacent possible idea cannot be maximized with people in the real world. Because, you know, it's commonly understood, like people could, like normal human beings can only maintain, I don't know, like a couple hundred real honest to goodness relationships um, at any one point in their life and otherwise it just gets stretched. And so this idea that we have like tens of thousands of followers or 5,000 friends or whatever is actually totally fake and artificial. Like it's not real because we can't, we don't have the carrying capacity for that in any real way. That is about steering, that is a steering behavior and that's about a grouping and clumping behavior. Um, but in and of itself, once you make the groups, um, you need the groups to still be dynamic. So you need to actually keep dropping in like polarizing, things that then fragment the group. And in that fragmentation, you have smaller groups or new groups or reformulated groups. And then guess what? According to these theories, you have access to new adjacent possibilities. And so the logic of the AI is like that you create groups and then you wreck them. 
like you create and then you wreck. It's this creative destruction model. And like I have that somewhere over on the other part of the map with like Schumpeter, I think. Um, let me see, where's creative destruction? Yeah, so the creative destruction model is up here in the map. Here we go. Um, Schumpeter, Joseph Schumpeter. Um, you know, I was spending a lot of time looking into Peter Drucker, the management theorist, and um, the fact that his, his uncle wrote the, the Austrian constitution and, and he had many politicos coming to visit his house because his father was a, um, you know, involved in the government and his mother was involved in psychoanalysis. And one of the, the mentors of him was this guy, Joseph Schumpeter. And, and Schumpeter's ideal was creative destruction. And so like within this space, there's an incentivization for creative destruction, which is kind of like Clayton Christensen's disruption, right? I mean, to me, I guess it's sort of a direct connection is the disruptor model. Um, so we're incentivized to get out the hammers and wreck the groups and restart. Only if you're not really willing to keep picking up the hammers, you're not really gonna be in any more groups. And I guess that's where I'm at now. And the lovely woman who read my Vedic astrology chart said, just be very clear about the work. When you're very clear about the work, the right people will show up. And so maybe I'll be coming back from the handful of people now and we can bring it back up to a dozen people. Um, but there's a lot of hammers. People have a lot of hammers out there. And I think if you're, if you're, if you're holding hammers, you're, not gonna, you're, gonna, you're gonna be locked into the finite game and not the infinite game. Um, so, and not to make this too personal, but like I have been, you know, I'm off of social media, but occasionally I do check to just sort of see like, is the message getting out, <laughs> right? Like, it's, I don't know, like I'll put my name in Twitter and there'll be like one person every four days says something about, it's like everyone forgot, like, you know, I think I, like nobody on Facebook, although my friend Hega, I know she did actually share the link, thank you Hega, to tonight's talk with Jason and Leo. Um, but yeah, I was looking and you know, and I shouldn't, I'm trying not to, I'm trying to figure out how to be playful with this, right? Because it actually is kind of silly. If you look at this person's Twitter profile, they have like a very fancy situation with like a very like fancy party red dress on, this lady in the red dress. And I know, I guess that's also out of the matrix, right? Um, this woman, Laura from last year, and, and she just literally is this ad hominem about me on her thing, I guess in relationship to, um, uh, Whitney Webb at the time, this was last summer, I guess this was me sort of just clarifying that there were lies said about my, the length of my time that I had been researching blockchain, which had been since like 2017 or 18. But it's like, she, she this woman is like, Allison never credits anyone for her work. She just mines online sources as if they are her resources and she is taking ideas and she doesn't credit anyone and she channels them into some outdated model of the conquistadorial independent researcher she's trying to occupy. And I'm just looking and I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, you know, look at what this is. Like, I'm not saying any of these are my ideas. In fact, many, many, many times I'm like, I keep telling people who care about me. I'm like, I'm not crazy. What I'm doing is I'm actually talking about the ideas that that sound crazy from other people because I think we need to take them seriously. Um, and it's all, you know, these, everything. I'm like, don't trust me. Look at the resources. Listen to the patterns that I'm seeing and follow it up and see if you concur, if you see something different. It's all about that. Um, and this woman is saying like, she, I don't understand blockchain except through the lens of paranoia. And, you know, and this is a woman who had spent like, I don't know, her online 
academic publications are about supply chain valuation in rural Africa, mostly led by German organizations. And even though that supply chain paper didn't, didn't speak to uh, blockchain, like that's exactly the kind of thing that's going to be put on blockchain and, and talking about AI weaponizing people against one another and stuff. And I'm like, I'm not looking for a principled unity with people who have different values. Now, I'm not here to try to make anyone wrong, but it's been very clear that most of the people in the influencer space and media have ties to blockchain, whether it's a payment system, whether it's how they're preserving their things online. Um, and I think if you, if you continue to do that and not question it and not look towards the broader plans of tokenization, um, you're not doing your readers any, um, any benefit because the, the, I, I don't have an outdated understanding of blockchain. I know very, very clearly what blockchain is meant to do. And this person's paper on rural uh, food security was in Tanzania, which is like back in 2018, 2019, I was writing papers about blockchain identity of unborn Tanzanian babies. So um, again, this, this woman was wandering around with a hammer, um, making sort of these ad hominem and actually um, incorrect assertions <laughs> that I'm from the powerful McDowell family in Philadelphia, founders of UPenn. Um, yeah, my, my, my husband works at Penn. He's like a mid-level administrator. The, the McDowells didn't found Penn. That was Ben Franklin, Ben Franklin's university. And if anything, like if you look up how many McDowells are in the US, there's a lot and they're probably more like from the mountains of North Carolina, the Appalachians, then uh, downtown Philadelphia. So um, anyway, I'm just, I'm trying to figure out how to be playful with these people um, because it's difficult. Um, and because even people that I was really close, I thought I felt that I was really close with that we were on the same page about exploring Web3, exploring the financialization, thinking about, um, what it meant, um, thinking about what it will mean like when you have a totally new way of funding quote unquote public goods when public goods are actually the open air prison. Um, these are hard things. These are really hard things to hold. They're heavy and, and I'm not good at playing. I will just admit it. I'm not, a, I'm not a super playful person. It doesn't make me a bad person. I'm trying. I would love to be funnier. <laughs> I would be, I would love to be more musical like Jason and Lynn have the, their, their lock in on that. Um, but I'm doing what I do with a certain level of intensity that I don't see other places. And like when I ask as a friend, like I'm asking for people, you know, I've Maria has stepped up and she's providing a, a you know, she wrote a letter from the labyrinth and she's going to do another one about um, the Yucatan and the smart development there. And, and a friend that I know in, in the Salt Lake City area, I think is going to write something about a new uh, children's health initiative out there tied to technology. So I'm getting a few, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a consumable. Like I think in this game, we have to respect each other. Like the, the business model from a lot of this online sugarscape world is it's a consumer customer relations model. And, and I'm trying to play, but I'm trying to figure out like how it's sort of like being, I don't know when I was in, <laughs> uh, ninth grade, our family moved from Louisville, Kentucky, which is a center for a lot of this actually, uh, to Charlotte, North Carolina. Again, Bank of America, a lot of that. Um, and, and this was in the 80s. And at the time, and 
ninth grade in Louisville was in high school. And then in North Carolina, it was in middle school, which is horrible, right? You can imagine. And I, it was like March or April. So no one was interested in take, like making new friends or anything like that. And so I had to like spend half the, the morning at the high school and then walk across this meadow and then go to the middle school. And everybody just thought I was weird. And I didn't have any friends because I was like that weird kid who didn't fit in and like, what's up with her and all of that. And like trying to figure out like how to, na like, I kind of feel like this again, like I'm in this middle space. I don't quite fit in into any of the spaces and yet I'd like to invite people to play to play with the ideas to put down the hammers to um to set that aside for a while not to say like you can't decide to pick it up later but like we're in this breathing moment like let us play around with the ideas and what I'm trying to say is like I know I've wandered off into the forest like you know like I've wandered far and I think a lot of people are like, I, I don't, um, I'm too tired. I don't want to go all the way out there. Can't we just be here? All the cool people are here. Like, why do we have to go out there? Because this is, this is so much more convenient and I'm tired and I'm busy. And, um, the people that, that I, you know, that I want to hang out with are reinforcing that we talk about these things. And I don't know much about the things that you're talking about. So I might dip in here and there, and, you know, I might from a distance think that you're kind of interesting, but I'm not going to come play with you because I don't know how. And you're kind of scary. <laughs> and um, that's sort of how it feels. And, um, and so maybe like, you know, what I'm doing now is I'm going out and I'm building, you know, a tree fort in the woods for the day that some people show up <laughs> and want to have the picnic. Um, because I was talking with Lynn about this today. And again, she's one of these handful of people who are still with me. And, um, you know, she's like, you know, God has a plan. God has a plan. And when things fall away, they fall away for a reason. And just keep at it, right? Like she was like, I was just reading Jeremiah again. And, you know, Jeremiah was at it for 30 years. The Babylonians are coming. And so I'm like, guys, I'm trying to figure out how we navigate around the Babylonians. So anyway, uh, enough. I'm not trying to, again, make any of these people wrong. I'm just trying to figure it out. How do we be playful? How do we practice play? I'm asking for help. I'm, I need a play coach. <laughs> um, uh, I, need, I need someone to like, like show me how to be more playful in this stuff. And because I think that's the answer. And I can be creative. I can be crafty. I'm not that playful and I'm not that musical, but I am pretty crafty. And I, I am, I do need to get back to the quilting. So, um, okay, so I'm gonna read this first out of the finite and infinite games. Not allowing the past to be past may be the primary source for the seriousness of finite players. Oh, here, let me see. I'll just make this more bigger. Uh, okay, um, yeah. So not allowing the past to be past may be the primary source for the seriousness of finite players. Inasmuch as finite play always has its audience, it is the audience to whom the finite player intends to be known as winner. The finite player, in other words, must not only have an audience, but must have an audience to convince. Just as the titles of winners are worthless, unless they are visible to others, there's a kind of anti-title that attaches to invisibility. To the degree that we are invisible, we have a past that has condemned us to oblivion. It is as though we have somehow been overlooked or even forgotten by our chosen audience. 
If it is the winners who are presently visible, it is the losers who are invisibly past. And as we enter into finite play, not playfully, but seriously, we come before an audience conscious that we bear the anti-titles of invisibility. We feel the need, therefore, to prove to them that we are not what they think we are, or more precisely, that we were not who we think the audience thinks we were. <laughs> and that's really interesting, right? As with all finite play, an acute contradiction quickly develops at the heart of this attempt. As finite players, we will not enter the game with sufficient desire to win unless we are ourselves convinced by the very audience we intend to convince. That is, unless we believe we actually are the losers the audience sees us to be, then we will not have the necessary desire to win. The more negatively we assess ourselves, the more we strive to reverse the negative judgment of others. The outcome brings the contradiction to perfection by proving to the audience that they were wrong. We prove to ourselves the audience was right. And the more we are recognized as winners, the more we know ourselves to be losers. And that is why it is rare for the winners of highly coveted and publicized prizes to settle for their titles and retire. Winners, especially celebrated winners, must prove repeatedly that they are winners. The script must be played over and over again. Titles must be defended by new contests. No one is ever wealthy enough, honored enough, applauded enough. On the contrary, visibility of our victories only tightens the grip of the failures in our invisible past. So crucial is this power of the past to finite play that we must find plays, ways of remembering that we have been forgotten to sustain our interest in the struggle. There is a humiliating memory at the bottom of all serious conflicts. Remember the Alamo, remember the Maine, remember Pearl Harbor. These are the cries that carried Americans into several wars. Having once been ins insulted by Athens, the great Persian emperor Darius renewed his appetite for war by having a page follow him around to whisper in his ear, sire, remember the Athenians. Athenians, right? <laughs> Indeed, it is only by remembering that we have forgotten that we can enter into competition with sufficient intensity to be able to forget we have forgotten the character of all play. Whoever must play cannot play. And whenever we act as the genius of ourselves, it will be in the spirit of allowing the past to be past. And it is in the genius of us who is capable of ridding us of resentment by exercising what Nietzsche called the faculty of oblivion, not as a way of denying the past, but as a way of reshaping it through our own originality. And then we forget that we have been forgotten by an audience and remember that we have forgotten our freedom to play. If in the culture into which we are born, there are always persons who will urge us to theatricalize our lives by supplying us with a repeatable past, there will also be persons, possibly the same ones, in whose presence we learn to prepare ourselves for surprise. It is in the presence of such persons that we first recognize ourselves as the geniuses we are. These persons do not give us our genius or produce it in us. In no way is the source of genius external to itself, Never is a child moved to genius. Genius's, genius arises with touch. Touch is a characteristically paradoxical phenomenon of infinite play. I am not touched by another when the distance between us is reduced to zero. I am touched only if I respond from my own center, that is, spontaneously and originally. But you do not touch me except from your own center, out of your own genius. Touching is always reciprocal. You cannot touch me unless I touch you in response.
The opposite of touching is moving. You move me by pressing me from without toward a place you have already foreseen and perhaps prepared. It is a staged action that succeeds only if in moving me, you remain unmoved yourself. I can be moved to tears by skilled performances and heartrending newspaper accounts, or moved to passion by political manifestos and narratives of heroic achievement. But in each case, I am moved according to a formula or design to which the actor or agent is immune. And when actors bring themselves to tears by their, by their performance and not as their performance, they have failed their craft. They have become theatrically inept. This means that we can be moved only by persons who are not what they are. We can be moved only when we are not who we are, but, what, but are what we cannot be. When I am touched, I am touched only as the person I am behind all theatrical masks. But at the same time, I am changed from within. And whoever touches me is touched as well. We do not touch by design. Indeed, all designs are shattered by touching. Whoever touches and whoever is touched cannot but be surprised. The unpredictability of this phenomenon is reflected in our reference to the insane as touched. We can be moved only by way of our veils. We are touched through our veils. The character of touching can be seen quite clearly in the way infinite players understand both healing and sexuality. If to be touched is to respond from one center, it is also to respond as a whole person. To be whole is to be hale or healthy, and some, whoever is touched, is healed. The finite player's interest is not in being healed or made whole, but in being cured or made functional. Healing restores me to play. Curing restores me to competition in one or another game. Physicians who cure must abstract persons into functions. They treat the illness, not the person. And persons willfully present themselves as functions. Indeed, what sustains the enormous size and cost of the curing professions is the widespread desire to see oneself as a function or a collection of functions. To be ill is to be dysfunctional. To be dysfunctional is to be unable to compete in one's preferred contests. It is a kind of death an inability to acquire titles. The ill become invisible. Illness always has the smell of death about it. Either it may lead to death or it leads to the death of a person as a competitor. The dread of illness is the dread of losing. One is never ill in general. One is always ill with relation to some bounded activity. It is not cancer that makes me ill. It is because I cannot work or run or swallow that I am ill with cancer. The loss of function, the obstruction of an activity, cannot in itself destroy my health. I am too heavy to fly by flapping my arms, but I do not for that reason complain of being sick with weight. However, if I desired to be a fashion model, a dancer, or a jockey, I would consider excess weight to be a kind of disease and would likely be consult a doctor, a nutritionist, or another specialist to be cured of it. And when I am healed, I am restored to my center in a way that my freedom as a person is not compromised by my loss of function. This means that the illness need not be eliminated before I can be healed. I am not free to the degree that I can overcome my infirmities, but only to the degree that I can put my infirmities into play. I am cured of my illness. I am healed with my illness. Healing, of course, has all the reciprocity of touching. 
Just as I cannot touch myself, I cannot heal myself. But healing requires no specialists, only those who can come to us out of their own center and who are prepared to be healed themselves. Isn't that pretty amazing? I just, I just think that's really interesting. Let me just say that last paragraph. Healing, of course, has all the reciprocity of touching. Just as I cannot touch myself, I cannot heal myself. But healing requires no specialists, only those who can come to us out of their own center and who are prepared to be healed themselves. And that's pretty interesting, I think. So um, before I move on, let me see if in the search bar, let me move over here. Uh, okay. Um, Yeah, let me look at the learn card for a second, because I think that that's really interesting. The moving, the touching, the functions, the illness, the healing. Um, you know, one of the things that I had shown was this node on the Internet of Education. And, you know, that's something that I, I'm grateful to Steffers for bringing to my attention, this idea of the Voronoi patterns and these Voronoi polyhedra, because... You know, I never thought that a digital twin would look like this bounded uh, polygon with these planes of influence. But, you know, I think that that's, um, and it's interesting because they talk about the center, right? So around this polyhedra, and this is, this is framed as the learn card, which is the World Bank's digital identity for learning economies. Uh, and the internet of education, a node, and they want us to be their node. Um, it's surrounded by actually um, an outer boundary of wired components, like wire, there's like a wireframe around the polyhedra. So I imagine that the polyhedra is when this book is talking about us imagining ourselves as functions, that, that it would look like that, like that this idea of, of us as a function of illness, as a collection of functions or being dysfunctional, that that's what it looks like is, um, is this kind of shape. And that the, moving the the moving versus the touching that the moving would be like using that plane of influence that wireframe to push or pull you in that space oh whoops i forgot i i <laughs> i forgot to move over the thing just a second i'm like <laughs> there it is <laughs> sorry i'm clearly not a professional at this um so there we've got the internet of education and the node and they can pull and push um but that's just moving. So let me, let me um, just read what they say about moving again. The opposite of touching is moving. You move me by pressing me from without toward a place you have already foreseen and perhaps prepared. That's the nudge, right? That's the nudge. It is a staged action that succeeds only if in moving me, you remain unmoved. And so you, you imagine that something might be I don't know, do they have a long stick and they're poking it or they're dragging it like a, I don't know, like a, they used to, we used to sometimes go in the fall to the apple picking orchard and there would be these like long poles with a little basket on the end that you'd like reach up and get the apple and pull it down. And like that, that was maybe what this thing was, is that like you have a long stick with a hook on it and you can like pull it. But the person itself, like they're standing in their firm place, but they're moving you through the wireframe. Um, like that that's movement and that's the behavioral economics that that, that is the nudge. Um, but when I am touched, I am touched only as a person I am behind the mask. So like 
the touch the the being touched means that you're actually integral to yourself you know who you are right as an energetic being um and you are changed from inside so it's not an outside force it's an internal force but it is shared by someone sharing themselves with you and so i think like how do we you know how are we navigating all of this and especially you know again i have this book about signals and boundaries right um the, the it's all about objects and understanding this guy holland let me just read this um like what a bounded object is because that's central you actually um have to know what the object is it says um seeing the world in terms of the bounded shapes we call objects Present day human society depends on cataloging boundaries that range from geographic, linguistic, and political boundaries down to the boundaries that define bodily organs and membranes that compartmentalize biological cells. The network's nodes, and this, see, they're calling it a node, exactly. The network's nodes represent bounded entities, species, neurons, organelles, and the connections between nodes represent the flow of signals between entities. And that is the mechanism of co-evolution. And so they're working on designing the boundaries with the signaling. But then the question is, are they touching or are they moving? And what is our responsibility in deciding whether or not we're going to be touched or moved? And then, and then I feel like that's part of the, the labyrinth. And you know, something I want to talk about more with, with Cliff later on is this idea of these nodes came out of the, the idea of the Internet of Things, which some of the early deployments of these uh, sensor networks were actually in Vietnam, in the Vietnam War, and they had these things that would pop out of airplanes. They would be thrown and uh, are loaded into canisters, I guess. I, I don't know if maybe some of them were individual and some of them were in canisters. But they were dropped and then they would open up uh, when they, I guess, hit the ground and like penetrate. The, the idea was that they would penetrate the ground, the ground, the sensors. And uh, and then they, they had a seismic mechanism that was supposed to along the Ho Chi Minh Trail to determine whether or not um, uh, that uh, that there were trucks going by. And so this was early Internet of Things, and it was coordinated uh, aerially. These ground sensor transmitters sent signals to the airplane. So now we've got uh, LIDAR uh, and other sort of frequency waves going. And, and instead of big, big airplanes, we've just got drones, and that's what's coming. So like this idea of using Internet sensing technology as in, in a theater of war, a war game, right? That this is a finite game that they're playing. Uh, to me, that's really important to understand that that role. And oh goodness, I think I'm keep. Sometimes I just lose, I lose track uh, uh, of the map. Anyway, sorry about that. But yeah, so linking the the um, this Internet of Things with the idea of the Strategic Hamlet program, which was a a controlled relocation program that that centered uh, individuals like families and put them into new communities where they could be controlled and have their behavior watched and managed in new ways. And, and I think that they were sort of built off the idea of the Indian reservation systems, the reservation systems, and then um, that it, they preceded the smart cities. Um, all right. So I think you get the thing that I'm trying to figure out about complex adaptive systems Athenian democratic smart contract layers. <laughs> um, 
how to be playful with people who are uh, would like to grab hammers and bang away at you and pretend that you're somehow you're because your husband works at the city's largest private employer that we've like we're running the university, which is so ironic. <laughs> and 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 you know, like I I put myself in this person's place, and you know I you know I think her quick thing is talking about oh my t this is her this is Laura my takeaway is that. Uh, from this is that AI is sophisticated enough now to be turning the good guys against each other like COINTELPRO did in the 1960s. People took things offline, fled the cities, moved to Africa, Hawaii, but eventually there was no place to hide. And now it's all grown up and fully automated. Termination commands pre-programmed into drones, all of this. And like, this is in relationship to me that I'm controlled opposition against, quote unquote, the most significant investigative researcher out there, Whitney Webb. And, you know... So this this person is clearly deciding to make a case. Like this is a stigmergic case, right? This is this is a clear example of the leader follower behavior. Is that and 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 you know I'm not making this about this one particular person at all. I'm just saying that this is part of how the swarm intelligence is set up. Is that you you know just exactly as we they were saying in the Athenian democracies and the knowledge management management systems, is that once we sort of get into this area. We, um, we follow a leader. We find the leader that we're, we're comfortable with. We find the, the, the city-state that we belong to. And this person's city-state has the name of a particular influencer. And so if you um, take a position that is counter to that, and, and in my case, um, for people who aren't familiar, it was that, that Whitney Webb repeatedly made public statements that I was only working in the area of blockchain as a, a way to get back at her and her friend, friend group, um, when I actually had documentation that she had asked me to do some research on education um, early in 2021. And I was pitching actually a project based on Rhode Island's blockchain education initiative that segued and integrated with her work in Israel um, on the Israeli stuff, because Israel was involved in the the health stuff in Rhode Island and she never got back to me. So like I, I had like cl very clear documentation that she was misrepresenting my work in her sphere. And yet people need to live in a certain story. And the story they live in is like, maybe everyone needs to be unified or everything, but he needs to be on the same page. But, you know, I'm coming from this idea that there need to like, maybe not everybody needs to have a principled position, but if, if you know what is right, um, which in my case, that that blockchain is a system. It's not about crypto, really. I mean, this all this stuff that's going down is to take away from Web3. It's about a decentralized ledger technology, whether you call it blockchain or something else, right? And it's about impact finance and cybernetics and optimization towards this global superorganism, um, towards an imperative, this Fabian imperative or this domination imperative, if you want to take it back to Rome, um, of transforming natural life into um, a dematerialized form that I think is is collective in nature, but collective in the nature of sociobiology and insect intelligence. Um, so, oh, you know what? I, I this this is going back to my stigmergy. So, you know, if 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 you want to have a conversation with me 
rather than um, throwing hammers, and again, th th this stuff, and I just happened to come across it because I was interested if anybody on social media was still actually using my information or sharing it out, and it seems like not so much. <laughs> um, and if you're following along, and like, I'm curious if you're someone who maybe does find this information valuable, and if you're sharing it, and if you're not, if you could maybe reflect and share with me, like if there's some limitation on why you're not sharing it publicly, like is it that like, I don't wanna be connected with Allison cause she's gone too far off in the woods and nobody knows what she's doing out there. And I think if I go out there, I'm gonna get lost. So I'm just gonna stay here where I'm comfortable. Like what, what are the stories that are told why this information isn't getting out? Like why um, as much as people might be, you know, centered on Jeffrey Epstein, like why the, you know, to me, the more interesting conversation from my perspective is the Santa Fe Institute and the swarm consciousness um, stuff. Like that that's, that, that that's, you know, this stuff, George Cowan, like the, these are the things, um, you know, sure, like Epstein funding Martin Nowak in the gamification of biology is cool, but let's like take it back to some of the enlightenment thinkers and the Bentham stuff. And then let's bring it forward to the deontic smart contract layer and back to like social contracts and the remaking of social contracts um, in these automated systems towards um, value-based tokenization. Um, anyway, so lots to think about. I'm trying to be playful. I'm really kind of serious. Mostly I'm just boringly serious. I can be playful, but I need some people to play with. And so, you know, I'd like to, um, again, extend the invitation I think this idea of looking around the labyrinth, um, labyrinths, uh, is something that is useful. It's a useful way of framing our thinking that, and understanding that a labyrinth is different from a maze. Like it is, it is also a meditative walk to the center. Now this idea of a labyrinth with a minotaur that might eat you is also unsettling, but that maybe if we can get to the middle that we can transmute into, um, into some sort of alternate reality. And I do feel like within these weird multiverse simulations that there is this entanglement, there is some other stuff going on that there are potentialities. These people say that there is the adjacent possible. So they're trying to manipulate the adjacent possible to their end. But um, I think that like there is a divine intelligence in the universe that will, um, that we can tap into as well. And um, I'm really looking forward next week uh, I'm going to be going to Tucson and my friend Drew is hosting some people. I'm going to be talking about, um, so the focus in Tucson for me, from a site uh, research standpoint is uh, looking at the, the like radio astronomy. So, so many telescopes around Tucson in the history of like L5 and Carolyn Meinel and her dad. Um, I can't remember his name. I'll, 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 it'll come to me, Arnand Meinel or something. Like he was, he helped develop some of the early astronomy and it was at uh, University of Arizona. And Stuart Hameroff, who has been working on sort of biocomputing and nanocomputing and consciousness and the microtubules with Penrose for a long time. And then looking at the money that the Fetzer Institute, uh, uh, John Fetzer actually used to winter uh, in Tucson. And uh, the Fetzer Institute, that money is often like paired up with the Templeton Foundation and so they've been putting money into like religious studies and philosophy and consciousness centers in Tucson and um, linking that with the biosphere too. 
and this idea of space colonization and then hopefully i'll be able to pop up to phoenix because i actually haven't ever spent any time looking around and even maybe going to the see where block science is um and and i really want to uh, head out to also like to keep it balanced with the nature part uh the cochise stronghold because i when Jason and I were there uh, summer before last, uh, you know, that's it. That was the Apache Wars, right? And, and you know, it's the extension of that legacy is Fort Huachuca. And, uh, and we went, we, we went to this cave and then we went to Fort Huachuca, like outside of it anyway. And we talked about it. And then we went to the Cochise stronghold, which was where the Apache and Geronimo and Cochise like held out for like 30 years against the U.S. military. And, um, before they were pushed to Oklahoma. And, um, and interestingly enough, one of the other books, like, so if people are like, the other people out there are like, oh, she can't like do all this stuff. She's not real, whatever. Like, I'm real. I just say how my sofa and I'm a nerd and I read books. But so I got uh, uh, Robin Wall Kimmer's Gathering Moss, which I've heard is an audiobook. But if we're looking at natural systems um, in the beauty of natural systems rather than just ants and bees, I'm, I'm interested in the organics of moss. And this, look at this one. This is a huge one. And I just started, but they will be done. The Conquest of the Amazon, uh, Nelson Rockefeller and Evangelism in the Age of Oil. And this is one that um, Raul had mentioned like quite some time ago. And I just got around to ordering it. But this is looking at um, the Wycliffe Bible and the jungle installations. Um, and the one of the co-founders of the Wycliffe Bible and linguistics, because again, I think they're getting these linguistics um, into the machine. Uh, there's a campus outside of Dallas, the International Linguistics Institute or something that was funded by the Hunt family uh, that's behind the, uh, there's Hunt money behind Pegasus Park, uh, the EdTech Biotech in Dallas. And uh, another big funder of this uh, linguistics institute that was actually pulling in sort of indigenous cosmology was Texas Instruments and Speak and Spell. So um, anyway, so these are all books that I'm dabbling with. I won't say that I've got them all read, but I have good and good intentions. Um, so, oh yes, but I, I guess what I was going to say is the the co-founder of the Wycliffe Bible thing, uh, he actually was a missionary in Oklahoma to the Comanche and the Apache and evidently was the, he converted or was there at the death of Geronimo. And of course, then there's that whole history going back to Skull and Bones and Yale and the role of Yale and all of this in environmentalism. So um, yeah, lots and lots of layers. Um, but okay, so now I'm just gonna go back. This is like just a quickie little thing. Um, the Garden of Forking Paths. And just to bring us back that this was part of, let me go up uh, in the, just so we have context of how this came about. Cause I have often so many like stream of consciousness connections that for me make a lot of sense and then to other people they don't really make so much sense um but that I, I decided to read this tonight one trying to figure out how to be playful in a land of hammer hammering <laughs> and deontic logic um and then two this idea of uh information aggregation organized information uh through bibliometrics and automated indexing that started back with the Manhattan Project um, and hypertext and that that one of the inspirations for the hypertext and multiverses was this short story. So, um, so maybe I'll just move this over like this. Let me see. And then I, I will 
keep this in context. Yeah, the Garden of Forking Paths. And we'll, oh, there we go. Okay, so you have something to look at besides me. <laughs> um, and look, oh, there we have eusociality underneath. That's the, oh, this is the bit with E.O. Wilson, uh, the Ant-Man working with Martin Nowak at Harvard and um, with funding from Epstein, among others, including the, the Templeton Foundation, which goes off over here. Um, so, yeah, okay. So, uh, Jorge Luis Bor Borges, The Garden of Forking Paths. And this was like 1941. On page 252 of Liddell Hart's History of World War I, you will read that an attack against the Serre uh, Montauban line by 13 British divisions supported by 1,400 artillery pieces planned for the 24th of July 1916 had to be postponed until the morning of the 29th. The torrential rains, Captain Liddell Hart comments, caused this delay, an insignificant one to be sure. The following statement dictated, reread, and signed by Dr. Yu Tsun former professor of English at the Hochschule at Tsing Tsao, throws an unexpected light over the whole affair. The first two pages of the document are missing. Dot, dot, dot. And I hung up the receiver. Immediately afterwards, I recognized the voice that had answered in German. It was that of Captain Richard Madden. Madden's presence in Victor Runeberg's apartment meant the end of our anxieties, but this seemed or should have seemed very secondary to me also the end of our lives. It meant that Runeberg had been arrested or murdered. Before the sunset on that day, I would encounter the same fate. Madden was implacable, or rather, he was obliged to be so, an Irishman at the service of England, a man accused of laxity and perhaps of treason. How could he fail to seize and be thankful for such a miraculous opportunity? The discovery, capture, and maybe even the death of two agents of the German Empire. I went up to my room. Absurdly, I locked the door and threw myself on my back on the narrow iron cot. Through the window, I saw the familiar roofs and the cloud-shaded six o'clock sun. It seemed incredible to me that that day without premonition or symbols should be the one of my inexorable death. In spite of my dead father, in spite of having been a child in a symmetrical garden of high fang, was I now going to die? And then I reflected that everything happens to a man precisely, precisely now. Centuries of centuries and only in the present do things happen. Countless men in the air, on the face of the earth and the sea, and all that really is happening is happening to me. The almost intolerable recollection of Madden's horse-like face banished these wanderings. In the midst of my hatred and terror, it means nothing to me now to speak of terror, now that I have foiled Richard Madden, now that my throat yearns for the noose. It occurred to me that the tumultuous and doubtless happy warrior did not suspect that I possessed the secret, the name of the exact location of the new British artillery park on the river Ancre. A bird streaked across the gray sky and blindly I translated it into an aeroplane and that aeroplane into many against the French sky, annihilating the artillery station with vertical bombs. If only my mouth before a bullet shattered it, could cry out that secret name so that it could be heard in Germany. My human voice was very weak. How might I make it carry to the ear of the chief, 
to the ear of that sick and hateful man who knew nothing of Runeberg and me save that we were in Staffordshire and we were waiting in vain for our report in his arid office in Berlin, endlessly examining newspapers. I said out loud, I must flee. I sat up noiselessly in a useful perfection of silence as if Madden were already lying in wait for me. Something, perhaps the mere vain ostentation of proving my resources were nil, made me look through my pockets. I found what I knew I would find, the American watch, the nickel chain, and the square coin, the key ring with the incriminating useless keys to Runenberg's apartment, the notebook, a letter which I resolved to destroy immediately and which I did not destroy, a crown, two shillings, and a few pence, the red and blue pencil, the handkerchief, the revolver with one bullet, Absurdly, I took it in my hand and weighed it in order to inspire courage within myself, and vaguely I thought that a pistol report can be heard at a great distance. In ten minutes my plan was perfected. The telephone book listed the name of the only person capable of transmitting the message. He lived in a suburb of Fenton, less than a half hour's train ride away. I am a cowardly man. I say it now, now that I have carried to its end a plan whose perilous nature no one can deny. I know its execution was terrible. I didn't do it for Germany. No, I care nothing for a barbarous country which imposed upon me the abjection of being a spy. Besides, I know, a man, I know of a man from England, a modest man, who for me is no less great than Goethe. I talked with him for scarcely an hour, but during that hour he was Goethe. I did it because I sensed that the chief somehow scorned people of my race for the innumerable ancestors who would merge within me. I wanted to prove to him that a yellow man could save his armies. Besides, I had to plea from Captain, flee from Captain Madden. His hands and his voice could call at my door at any moment. I dressed silently, bade farewell to myself in the mirror, went downstairs, scrutinized the peaceful street, and went out. The station was not far from my house, but I judged it wise to take a cab. I argued that in this way I ran less risk of being recognized. The fact that in a deserted street I felt myself visible and vulnerable infinitely so. I remembered that I told the cab driver to stop a short distance before the main entrance. I got out with voluntary, almost painful slowness. I was going to the village of Ashgrove, but I bought a ticket for a more distant station. The train left a very few minutes at 8.50. I hurried. The next one would leave at 9.30, and there was hardly a soul on the platform. I went through the coaches. I remember a few farmers, a woman dressed in mourning, a young boy who was reading with fervor annals of Tacitus, a wounded and happy soldier. The coaches jerked forward at last. A man whom I recognized ran in vain to the end of the platform. It was Captain Richard Madden. Shattered, trembling, I shrank into the far corner of the seat, away from the dreaded window. And from this broken state, I passed into an almost abject happiness. I told myself that the duel had already begun and that I had won the first encounter by frustrating, even if for 40 minutes, even if by a stroke of fate, the attack of my adversary. I argued that the victory was not slight, since without the precious difference that the train schedule afforded me, I would be in jail or dead. I argued no less fallaciously that my cowardly happiness proved that I was a man capable of carrying out the adventure successfully. And from this weakness, I took strength that did not abandon me. I foresee that man will resign himself each day to more atrocious undertakings, and soon there will be no, no one but warriors and brigands. I give them this counsel. 
the author of an atrocious undertaking ought to imagine that he has already accomplished it, ought to impose upon himself a future as irrevocable as the past. And thus I proceeded as my eyes of a man already dead, registered in a lapsing of that day, which was perhaps the last, and the diffusion of the night. The train ran gently along amid ash trees. It stopped almost in the middle of the fields. No one announced the name of the station. Ashgrove, I asked, a few lads on the platform. Ashgrove, they replied. I got off. A lamp enlightened the platform, but the faces of the boys were in shadow. One questioned me, are you going to Dr. Stephen Albert's house? And without waiting for my answer, another said, the house is a long way from here, but you won't get lost if you take the road to the left and at every crossroads, again, turn to your left. I tossed them a coin, my last, descended a few stone steps and started down the solitary road. It went downhill slowly. It was an, of elemental earth. Overhead, the branches were tangled. The low moon seemed to accompany me. And for an instant, I thought that Richard Madden in some way had penetrated my desperate plan. Very quickly, I understood that this was impossible. The instructions to turn always to the left reminded me that such was the common procedure for discovering the central point of certain labyrinths. I had some understanding of labyrinths. Not for nothing am I the great-grandson of Tzu Pen, who was governor of Yunnan and who renounced worldly power in order to write a novel that might even be more pop populous than the Hung Li Meng, and to construct a labyrinth in which all men would become lost. Thirteen years he dedicated to the heterogeneous tasks, but the hand of a stranger murdered him, and his novel was incoherent, and no one found the labyrinth. Beneath English trees, I meditated on that lost maze. I me imagined it inviolate and perfect at the secret crest of a mountain. I imagined it erased by rice fields or beneath the water. I imagined it infinite, no longer composed of octagonal kiosks and returning paths, but of rivers and provinces and kingdoms. I thought of, lab of a labyrinth of labyrinths, of one sinuous spreading labyrinth that would encompass the past and the future and in some way involve the stars. Absorbed in these illusory images, I forgot my destiny of one pursued. I felt myself to be, for not an unknown period of time, an abstract perceiver of the world. The vague living countryside, the moon, the remains of the day worked on me, as well as the slope of the road, which eliminated any possibility of weariness. The evening was intimate, infinite. The road descended and forked among the now confused meadows. A high-pitched, almost syllabic music approached and receded in the shifting of the wind, dimmed by leaves and distance. And I thought that a man can be as an enemy of other men, of the moments of other men, but not of a country, not of fireflies, words, gardens, streams of water, sunsets. And thus I arrived before a tall rusty gate. Between the iron bars I made out a poplar grove and a pavilion, and I understood suddenly two things. The first trivial, the second almost unbelievable. The music came from the pavilion, and the music was Chinese. For precisely that reason I had openly accepted it without paying it any heed. I do not recall if there was a bell or a buzzer or if I clapped my hands. The sparkling of the music continued. From the rear of the secluded house within a lantern approached a lantern that the trees sometimes uh, striped and sometimes eclipsed, a paper lantern that had the form of a drum and the color of the moon. A tall man bore it. I didn't see his face for the light blinded me and he opened the door and said slowly in my own language, 
I see the pious Tsi Peng persists in correcting my solitude. You no doubt wish to see the garden. I recognized the name of one of our consuls, and I replied, disconcerted, the garden? The garden of forking paths. Something stirred in my memory, and I uttered with incomprehensible certainty, the garden of my ancestor, uh, Tsui Pen, your ancestor, your illustrious ancestor, come in. The damp paths zigzagged like those of my childhood. We came to a library of Eastern and Western books, and I recognized bound in yellow silk several volumes of the Lost Encyclopedia, edited by the third emperor of the Luminous Dynasty, but never printed. The record on the phonograph revolved next to a bronze phoenix. I also recall a famille rose vase and another many centuries older of that shade of blue which our craftsmen copied from the potters of Persia. Stephen Albert observed me with a smile. He was, as I have said, very tall, sharp-featured with gray eyes and a gray beard. There was something of a priest about him, but also a sailor. And later he told me that he had been a missionary in Tianxin before aspiring to become a sinologist. We sat down, I on a low divan, but he with his back to the window and a tall circular clock. I calculated that my pursuer, Richard Madden, could not arrive for at least an hour. My irrevocable determination could wait. An astounding fate that of Tsui Pen, Stephen Albert said, governor of his native province, learned in astronomy, in astrology, and in the tireless interpretation of the canonical books, chess player, famous poet, and calligrapher. He abandoned all this in order to compose a book and a maze. He renounced the pleasures of both tyranny and justice, of his populist uh, couch, of his banquets and even of erudition, all to close himself up for 13 years in the pavilion of the limpid solitude. When he died, his heirs found nothing save chaotic manuscripts. His family, as you may be aware, wished to condemn them to the fire, but his executor, a Taoist or a Buddhist monk, insisted on their publication. We descendants of Tsui Pen, I replied, continued to curse that monk. Their publication was senseless. The book is an indeterminate heap of contradictory drafts. I examined it once. In the third chapter, the hero dies. In the fourth, he is alive. And as for the other undertaking of all, Tzu Pen, his labyrinth. Here is Tzu Pen's labyrinth, he said, indicating a tall, lacquered desk. An ivory labyrinth, I exclaimed. A tiny labyrinth? A labyrinth of symbols, he corrected. An invisible labyrinth of time. To me, a barbarous, barbarous Englishman has been entrusted the revelation of this dias, diaphanous mystery. After more than a hundred years, the details are irretrievable. But it is not hard to conjecture what happened. Tupin must have said once, I am withdrawing to write a book. And another time, I am withdrawing to construct a labyrinth. And everyone imagined two works. To no one did it occur that the book and the maze were one and the same. The pavilion of the limpid solitude stood in the center of a garden that was perhaps intricate. The circumstance may have suggested to men a physical labyrinth. Tsui Pen died, and no one in the vast territories uh, that were that were his his uh, that were his where he came upon the labyrinth. The confusion of the novel suggested to me that it was the maze. Two circumstances gave me the correct solution to the problem. One, the curious legend that Tsui Pen had planned to create a labyrinth which would be strictly infinite. The other, a fragment of a letter I discovered. 
Albert rose. He turned his back on me for a moment, and he opened a drawer of the black and gold desk. He faced me, and in his hands he held a sheet of paper that had once been crimson but was now pink and tenuous and cross-sectioned. The fame of Tsui Pen as a calligrapher had been justly won. I read uncomprehendingly and with fervor these words written with a minute brush by a man of my blood. I leave to the various futures, not all, my garden of forking paths. And wordlessly I returned the sheet and Albert continued. Before unearthing this letter, I had questioned myself about the ways in which a book can be infinite. I could think of nothing other than a cyclical volume, a circular one, a book whose last page was identical with the first, a book which had the possibility of continuing indefinitely. I remember too that night, which is at the middle of the thousand and one nights when Queen Shezerade had Shezerad, through a magical oversight of the copyist, begins to relate word for word the story of the thousand and one nights at the risk of coming once again to the night when she must repeat it, and thus on to infinity. I imagined as well a platonic hereditary work transmitted from father to son in which each new individual added a chapter or connected with pious care to the pages of his elders. These conjectures diverted me, but none seemed to co correspond, not even remotely, to the contradictory chapters of Tui, Tui Pen. And in the midst of this perplexity, I received from Oxford the manuscript you have examined, and I lingered naturally on the sentence, I leave to the various futures, parentheses, not to all, close parentheses, my garden of forking paths. And almost instantly I understood the garden of forking paths was the chaotic novel. The phrase, the various futures, not all, suggested to me that the forking in time, not space. A broad rereading of the work confirmed this theory. In all fictional works, each time a man is confronted with several alternatives, he chooses one and eliminates the others. In the fiction of the almost inextricable to Tui Pen, he chooses simultaneously all of them. He creates, and in this way, diverse futures, diverse times which themselves also proliferate and fork. And here then, in the explanation of the novel's contradictions, Feng, let us say, has a secret. A stranger calls at his door, and Feng resolves to kill him. Naturally, there are several outcomes. Feng can kill the intruder. The intruder can kill Feng. They both can escape. They both can die, and so forth. And in the work of Tsui Pen, all possible outcomes occur. Each one is the point of departure for another fork. And sometimes the paths of this labyrinth converge. For example, you arrive at this house, but in one of the possible paths, you are my enemy. In another, my friend. If you will resign yourself to my incurable pronunciation, we shall read a few pages. His face, within the vivid circle of the lamplight, was unquestionably that of an old man, but with something unalterable about it, even immortal. And he read with slow precision two versions of the same epic chapter. In the first, an army marches to a battle across a desolate mountain. The horror of the rocks and shadows makes the men undervalue their lives, and they gain an easy victory. In the second, the army traverses a palace where a great festival is taking place. The resplendent battle seems to them a continuation of the celebration, and they win the victory. I listened with proper veneration to these ancient narratives, perhaps less admirable in themselves than the fact that they had been created by my blood and were being restored to me by a man of remote empire in the course of a desperate adventure on a western isle. I remember the last words repeated in each version like a secret commandment. Thus fought the heroes, tranquil their admirable hearts, violent their swords, resigned to kill and die.
And from that moment on, I also felt about me and within my dark body an invisible, intangible swarming, not swarming of the divergent parallel and finally coalescent armies, but a more inaccessible, more intimate agitation that they in some manner prefigured. Stephen Albert continued, I don't believe that your illustrious ancestors played idly with these variations. I don't consider it credible that he would sacrifice 13 years to the infinite execution of a theoretical rhetorical experiment. In your country, the novel is a subsidiary form of literature. In Tzu Tsi Pen's time, it was a despicable form. Tsui Pen was a brilliant novelist, but he was also a man of letters who doubtless did not consider himself a mere novelist. The testimony of his con uh, contemporaries proclaims, and his life fully confirms, his metaphysical and mystical interests. Philosophic controversy usurps a good part of the novel. I know that of all the problems, none disturbed him so greatly, nor worked upon him so much as the abysmal problem of time. Now then, the latter is the only problem that does not figure in the pages of the garden. He does not even use the word that signifies time. How do you explain this voluntary omission? I proposed several solutions, all inadequate. We discussed them, and finally Stephen Albert said to me, in a riddle whose answer is chess, what is the only prohibited word? And I thought a moment and replied, the word chess? Precisely, said Albert, the garden of forking paths is enormous riddle or a parable whose theme is time. This recondite cause prohibits its mention. To omit a word always, to resort to inept metaphors and obvious paraphrases is perhaps the most emphatic way of stressing it. That is the tortuous method preferred in each of the meanderings of the infatigable novel by the oblique to pen. I have com compared hundreds of manuscripts. I have corrected the errors that the negligence of the copyist has introduced. I have guessed the plan of this chaos. I have reestablished, I believe, I have reestablished the primordial organization. I have translated the entire work. It is clear to me that not once does he employ the word time. The explanation is obvious. The garden of forking paths is an incomplete but not false image of the universe as Suits Pens conceived it. In contrast to Newton and Schopenhauer, your ancestor did not believe in a uniform absolute time. He believed in an infinite series of times in a growing dizzying net of divergent, convergent, and parallel times, this network of times which approached one another, forked, and broke off, or were unaware of another for centuries, embraces all possibilities of time. We do not exist in the majority of these times. In some you exist and not I, in others I and not you, in others both of us, in the present one which a favorable fate has granted me, you have arrived at my house, and in another while crossing the garden you found me dead, and in another I utter these same words, but I am a mistake, a ghost. In every one I pronounced, not without a tremble in my voice. I am grateful to you, and I revere you for your recreation of the garden of Tsui Pen. Not in all, he murmured with a smile. Time forks perpetually towards innumerable futures. In one of them, I am your enemy. And once again, I felt a swarming sensation of which I have spoken. It seemed to me that the humid garden in that had surrounded the house was infinitely saturated with invisible persons, those persons were Albert and I, secret, busy, and multiform in other dimensions of time, and I raised my eyes, and the tenuous nightmare dissolved. In the yellow and black garden, there were only one man, 
but this man was as strong as a statue. This man was approaching along the path and he was Captain Richard Madden. The future already exists, I replied. But I am your friend. Could I see the letter again? And Albert rose standing tall and he opened the drawer of the tall desk and for a moment he turned his back to me. I had readied the revolver. I fired with extreme caution. Albert fell uncomplainingly. Immediately, I swear his death was instantaneous, a lightning stroke. The rest is unreal and insignificant. Madden broke in, arrested me. I have been condemned to the gallows. I have won out abominably. I've communicated to Berlin the secret name of the city they must attack. They bombed it yesterday. I read it in the same papers offered to England, the mystery of the learned sinologist Stephen Albert, who was murdered by a stranger, Yu Tsien. The chief had deciphered this mystery. He knew my problem was to indicate through the uproar of war the city called Albert and that I had found no other means to do so than to kill a man of that name. He does not know, no one can know, my innumerable contrition and weariness. For Victoria Ocampo. All right. So, so there you go. Take a little break and then join us back here on the channel at 8 Eastern Standard Time. And uh, it's a pre-recorded stream, but I know I'll be in the chat. And I don't know, maybe Jason and Leah will be in the chat. I'm not 100% sure, but it's about Web3. So just remember, half your intellectual free time spent on Web3 and maybe in the context of signals and complexity theory and emergent superorganisms out of multiverses and knowledge. And um, anyway, thanks for joining in, folks. Um, let's try to be playful. If you have tips of keeping me in order, maybe pop back in and uh, leave some comments on my channel, like jokes or playful pokes or something like that, because uh, I need more practice at it. All right. Good night, everybody.